You're listening to Go with Jamarlin Martin. We have a go hard or go home approach as we talk to the leading tech leaders, politicians, and influencers. Let's go. We have Karen Fleshman, the founder of Racy Conversations. How's it going, Karen? It's going great, Jamarlin. Uh, so we're in the belly of the beast. We're in Silicon Valley, a place that I believe is the modern day capital of uh, white supremacy. I would agree. You would agree. Karen, uh, dive right in and tell us a little bit about your uh, background and how you, your path to uh, starting Racy Conversations. I've been a community organizer since I was in elementary school, and I've always had a real strong sense of justice and didn't want anybody to feel excluded. I grew up in an all-white community, uh, but my best friend immigrated from the former Soviet Union when we were in fifth grade. So I was always on the side of the outsider. And her family majorly impacted me. I can assure you I would not be sitting in this room with you had she not been my friend. Um, I got very interested in... Uh, Latin American studies and the wars in Central America. And I wanted to become a development economist, uh, but I wound up deciding that I really wanted to focus on my society and, and our problems. And the early part of my career was in the immigrants' rights movement and helping immigrants become citizens. I later um, was working for the city of New York when reports came out that said 50% of black men in New York City don't have a job, and we have 200,000 young adult New Yorkers, almost entirely black and Latinx, who are not in school, not working. This was in the early 2000s. And I completely shifted focus to workforce development. I thought the answer was job training and internships and connecting people to employment. And I dedicated a solid 10 years of my career to that, moved to the Bay Area, continued that line of work. And then uh, in 2014, a couple things happened. One was Ferguson and specifically the non-indictment of Darren Wilson. That was a major turning point for me when I realized that no matter how active people were, there was so much white supremacy in our society that it was really difficult to get any progress made toward police accountability. A couple weeks after that, I was having brunch with two young women who I'm close with Bay Area natives who uh, graduated from the job training program I used to work for and were working in tech. And they were telling me, Karen, you know, we're very grateful for our careers and our lifestyles, but we are microaggressed at these companies nonstop, even while they put us all over their marketing material, like, look at all the great stuff we're doing for the community. Their own managers were saying things to them like, oh, you know, we only hired you because you're black. And that just really turned my stomach. At that point, my job was doing student outreach for this program. So, uh, so you're, you're white, you're on the inside, people feel comfortable talking about you. And you just kind of observed just blatant racism against black people. That's on it. The on the inside. Through their eyes. Yeah. And, and to realize that I was a tool of that, that I was like sending young people into these very harmful environments made me just say, you know what, I can't do this anymore. I have to start to change those environments if young people are going to go off and work in them. And how can I do that? Oh, I know there's a lot of white people on LinkedIn. 
I'm just going to start blogging on LinkedIn about racism. And then the blog I wrote after Charleston went viral, that led to blogging on Huffington Post, that led to doing workshops. It seems like it's taboo on LinkedIn. Like, hey, you know, you come there, you can find a job, you network. But for you to bang your activism on LinkedIn, it seems like it's uh, it goes against uh, kind of, you know, the object that most people's objective of using LinkedIn. However, your path, uh, of course, seems like it, it's aligned with that. Professionally. And I've been able to connect. I have built a national network, largely of women of color who share my same beliefs and are doing incredible work all across the country. And so I've been able to go across the country uh, co-hosting interracial sisterhood conversations and convening these women from all different backgrounds to talk about overcoming racism and white supremacy and ending the racial divides among women and white women taking accountability. Talk a little bit about your academic background. Yeah, so I, uh, I'm a graduate of Mount Holyoke College, an all-women's college, which is a fantastic education. Um, Shirley Chisholm was a professor there. It was just a great place to go to school. And then I went on to um, University of Texas for my master's degree in radio, TV, film. And then uh, while working for the city of New York on the mayor's graduate scholarship, I attended law school at night and a, a four-year program, and I graduated and took the bar, and I'm admitted to practice law in New York. Uh, share with the audience uh, the goals of Racy Conversations. The goal of Racy Conversations is to flip the 10% of white millennials and white uh, Generation Z to anti-racism so we can have a majority anti-racist generation. So the... Um, Millennials, 43% of them are people of color. Generation Z, 47% are people of color. So if we can reach 10% of the white people in those generations and flip them, then we can have majority anti-racist generation. I questioned you before in saying that I don't see a lot of active white women in the belly of the beast, uh, in Silicon Valley, in, you know, close to tech, who speak out where, you know, you're willing to call names, you're specifically willing to say white supremacy, to say white women, your specific cat racial category. Why is that? Or am I missing something? There's a lot of other folks uh, that I don't know about who speak, you know, with a similar tone. Mm-hmm. I mean, there there are uh, Freda Kapoor, you know, she is outstanding and she oh, is certainly a, a huge role model and mentor for me. But I would say it's not just in... Silicon Valley. It is a national. I cannot name a single household name white woman, celebrity, uh, elected official, executive, uh, a famous white woman who's really out there talking about racism and white supremacy. They don't exist. I feel like white women don't bang for black people. They don't speak out for for, for black people, right? That Uh, that, that this is not, just in terms of uh, my life, you know, I just, I'm not familiar with white women really speaking out on black issues. 
black people, the descendants of slaves, uh, you know, we have to go and bang against white women and white men. But, you know, it would seem like white women, they're, they're supposed to be the soft liberals. They're supposed to be the kind of more progressive group. But I never saw that. No, I would say white women are the number one enforcers of white supremacy in our society. And we identify with white men. And um, we're very comfortable in our position of privilege. I would say because we are the ones who maintain the social order. We are the ones who, you know, run the schools and we run the um, religious institutions and we, uh, you know, we're active in nonprofit organizations. We're active in philanthropy and in the workplace. You know, white women uh, are not kind to other women in the workplace, and they're particularly not kind to women of color and to men of color. And I would say the great irony being that the folks who have done the most to advance white women are, are black men, specifically Frederick Douglass, Martin Luther King, Barack Obama, all did tremendous things to, to help white women achieve where we are, which is the number two position in our society. But we don't have any knowledge of that history, and, do we, and we certainly don't feel any compulsion to return the favor. And then white women go after Trump is questioning Obama's birth, his citizenship, uh, constantly disrespecting Barack Obama. You know, he's, he's calling, suggesting uh, Mexican uh, immigrants uh, are uh, rapists. 52% of white women go and vote for Trump. That's the first thing I've thought about every morning since November 9th, 2016, and the last thing I think about before I go to sleep. And including some of my family members, you know, cousins my age voted for him. If 52% of uh, white women, you know, they vote for Trump, and you're saying as a white woman that, that you have just seen a massive amount of racism uh, in the culture from white women, we both know that they don't really speak out aggressively on oppression on the issues, never have. Is there a danger with so many uh, black people specifically getting caught up into the Me Too and gender movements and diversity movements that are going on? You know, we're politically, it's not advantageous for black people to be so gun ho uh, with these movements uh, where, you know, most of the gains are going to go to your oppressor and that oppressor being white women. Hmm. I definitely, you know, I was in Las Vegas for the Women's March one year anniversary uh, and all of the speakers were women of color. There were only a couple of white women uh, who addressed the, the crowd assembled there. And the message was, white women, step aside and follow the lead of women of color. Like, until you can get your Becky situation under control, your family members who voted for Trump, all of that, like, just get out of the way get behind us and we're going to be the leaders. And I think that is the role that white women need to take in these movements is not calling the shots, but bringing our resources 
and and using our resources and influence to support the leadership of women of color. Again, I don't see a lot of white women stepping into that, right? I see a lot of passivity on the part of white women and a lot of this kind of devolution into like this spiritual framework where like I'm just going to, you know, practice yoga or you know, do all this meditation and there's nothing wrong with yoga, meditation or spiritual practices, but I don't think they are remaining as engaged as we need to be. If we're really going to win the midterms, if we're really going to take Trump down in the 2020 election, I would like to see a much greater engagement on the part of white women that includes a recognition of our own white supremacy and and working on ourselves and overcoming our racism has to be a part of that. You made a good point about black women speaking out uh, with the Women's March. However, when you look at the push to diversify Silicon Valley, uh, to address the, the, the promiscuous inequality, really white women are at the forefront of that. Would you agree with that? I would say white women are the number one beneficiaries of the push to diversify Silicon Valley. And there's been some great leadership, uh, such as her name is eluding me, the woman from Uber who wrote the memo, who wrote the blog post detailing uh, all of the employment discrimination she had experienced at Uber was a major step forward in the movement. But I would say as far as like who is leading the drive to diversify Silicon Valley, it's coming from people of color. Uh, when I see the Fortune articles, when I see the, the mainstream media going in and, you know, interviewing the folks uh, at the VC firms and the VC firms themselves, uh, diversity is really kind of position uh, in Silicon Valley in big tech is really we have to get more women in the game. Uh, and then at the forefront of that, uh, at least when they're talking, what it sounds what it sounds like to me is we have to get more white women in the industry. Yeah, I would definitely say those are the those are the quote unquote diverse folks that they are most comfortable with. So that that's their number one go to. Uh, but I would also say on the part of of white women within tech, there's not a great deal of leadership. For example, in 2015, I attended one of the major women in tech conferences in Silicon Valley. And the panels were all about, you know, design thinking to solve problems and preparing for your technical interview and all of these things. So after, uh, shortly after the election in 2016, there was a call for, for speakers and panels at this conference for their next edition. And so I submitted a panel of women of color and non-gender conforming women giving white cishet professional women feedback on how we could be better sisters in the workplace. Um, and my panel was promptly turned down. And when I saw the panels that they did have, it was again around design thinking and um, how to prepare for your technical interview. So it seems like there's a lot of resistance. Um, very few white women really want to be challenged. 
They think that they have struggled really hard for what they have and that they, they do in some sense, I think, think of themselves as being empathetic with these struggles of other people, but they don't have any meaningful relationships with them. They don't sit down for coffee or, you know, chit chat, uh, at the playground or whatever with people of color whatsoever. So they don't at a distance, they have empathy, but they don't really understand the struggles of people of color and they have extreme white fragility and, and if confronted, will just turn away because they don't want to deal with it. If you like what you're hearing, you could check us out at moguldom.com. That's M-O-G-U-L-D-O-M.com. That's moguldom.com. We have the latest information on tech, crypto, the business of Hollywood and economic empowerment. Uh, you can also check me out on Twitter at Jamarlin Martin. Let's get back to the podcast. Have you run into any resentment uh, here where, hey, Karen, I like what you say, but you're a white woman uh, in terms of from, 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 from black people where, hey, you know, you're fighting the good fight, but you're uh, a white woman. And I don't want to see a white woman representing kind of leadership in tackling these issues. Have you, have you ran into any black people who kind of are skeptical or challenge you? Uh, talk about any of that if it's there. Oh, yeah. My, I'm frequently challenged by black people, which I welcome. I mean, I, I think it's an important part of the engagement and it keeps me honest and it keeps me growing. And I have mentors who push my buttons and really push me um to humble myself and to not center myself and to not uh, think of myself as the end all and be all, you know, white savior. That is the exact opposite of what I want to be. Um, but yeah, I, I'm definitely challenged all the time. It's, it's when you're in this role, no one is, no one is happy with you. White people don't want to hear from you. And a lot of black people don't want to hear from you either. Has this resulted in, uh, you know, a lot of doubt uh, in terms of, hey, I'm in the middle here where I'm banging hard against specifically white women and, you know, black people really don't appreciate me either. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, but I'm not doing this to, I'm not doing this to gain someone's appreciation. I'm doing this because this is the right thing to do. And I think it's really, really important that white people hold other white people accountable and point these things out to white people, um, I think is very, very important. Um, and I'm going to keep doing it until the day I die. I mean, I'm not like dissuaded or whatever. The, 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 um, the pushback is not going to stop me from keep going. It's definitely going to cause me to question how I'm doing it and am I doing it right? So for example, you know, when I first started in police accountability activism, I thought that police could be reformed and all of this stuff. And the longer I stay in, the more I'm convinced they can't be. Um, but when I first heard people saying, oh, we got to abolish the police and start over all this stuff, I thought, that's too radical. Like that can never happen. And now I'm like, oh my gosh, they are 100% right. That's what we need to be working on. You recently uh, wrote a great piece about the 50th anniversary of uh, Dr. King's assassination and that white women need to step up big time. Can you talk a little bit about your piece, 
what kind of inspired you to write that and, and, and walk the audience through, you know, the key points you touched on. Yeah. Well, I think one of my major frustrations is that white women, people in general in our society, have very limited understanding of our country's history uh, and very limited understanding of how deep white supremacy, uh, racism is what our society is based on, what our economy is based on. Um, but in particular, that white women somehow think that it was the feminist movement that got women legal protection from discrimination. But it wasn't. It was Dr. King and black people. They, at tremendous personal risk, you know, people lost their lives, they were jailed, they couldn't, they struggled to feed their families, led this movement to get a law passed banning discrimination. And at the last minute, gender was added to that law. It wasn't even going to be in there. And 50 years later, the number one beneficiaries of that law are white women. Meanwhile, during the civil rights movement, a handful of us engaged in it uh, many of us were very antagonistic to civil rights and most of us were just kind of ambivalent in the middle. Um, and then w who earns the most? So like we, we earn 83 cents to the dollar that white men make, but, but Latinx women are making 56 cents. Black women are making 65 cents. Have you heard of uh, any legislation uh, here in California targeted at venture capitalists, uh, VC firms, that would force them to disclose the, the racial makeup, age makeup, and gender makeup of their, uh, the, the founders that they're investing. Have you heard anything about that here? As you know, you know, there's been a promiscuous amount of discrimination across pretty much every financial category, you know, mortgages, uh, rental, housing d discrimination, auto lending, uh, pretty much the, the discrimination has been proven, uh, the systemic discrimination has been proven over and over again. But why hasn't liberal California forced uh, VC firms to disclose, document the racial makeup, gender makeup, age makeup of their investments? I would not call California quote unquote liberal or progressive. San Francisco, certainly not. Uh, if you go back to 1963, James Baldwin made a documentary about racism in San Francisco that is still 100% applicable to today. Um, there's a great article in the New York Times just this past weekend by an ex-Californian. It sounds like you're saying Frisco is known of being extremely liberal, but when it comes to race, no. Exactly. And look at look at look at the push to on the tech companies to disclose their numbers. That push did That's not like pulling teeth out of Google, yeah. right? So Google, uh, as many of you know out there, uh, is under federal investigation for discriminatory uh, practices in terms of the page gap between uh, men and women. And that push did not come from California. It was Jesse Jackson who came in and pushed the tech companies to disclose their numbers. They would not 
disclose their numbers. Yeah, so the gender is- issue at Google, you source it to Jesse Jackson, actually. I wouldn't source the, the gender issue at Google. You know, that is also folks of mine, friends of mine who are employment discrimination attorneys. They can't even do pay uh, wage differential class suits for people of color because there's so few people of color that it's not statistically significant. They exclusively focus on women in these wage gap lawsuits because there's just enough of them that you can have a meaningful lawsuit, if that makes sense. I think it's two separate different categories, but I would not say any California elected official at any time is going to be like, oh, let me take up the mantle of racial equality. We have, for example, we have some of the worst police brutality in the whole country. We have 22,000 police officers and correctional officers statewide allied in this massive lobbying force that keeps uh, police in California some of the most protected in the entire country, stronger than what they have in Alabama. So the idea that California is like this progressive place uh, fails when it comes to race. And, and, and look at the 2008 economic downturn. Where did that emanate out of? Subprime mortgage lending in California. That's it. All those people of color lost their homes, lost all their equity, uh, and then who owns their home now? Probably BlackRock. BlackRock was fun. Exactly. Yeah. None of those guys went to jail. Tony Robbins uh, recently made a statement uh, and then apologized. Uh, uh, he said that women in the Me Too movement, uh, they're looking to gain significance. When I, when I read it, obviously uh, a bad choice uh, of words and even worse timing for those words and the video of him oh the video yeah he's like physically intimidating the woman who's questioning him okay wow yeah, real bully behavior. part of me uh says hey in looking at black activism mm-hmm. and looking at black churches black politics there's always been people who come in with agendas they're looking to make money black people looking to make money off of not the Me Too movement, but let's call it the hashtag black movement, right? So we've seen it over and over again where folks come in, they're not genuine, but they, they're looking to use racism, uh, racial divisions to pimp the real movement. So the black community has elements of this. Uh, would it be wrong uh, for a man to say, hey, of course the Me Too movement is going to have people who are insincere and they're looking to profit off of the movement. Or does does that discussion need to wait for this to kind of filter through the the culture? Yeah, I mean, I do think it's, it's wrong for a man, especially for a man of Tony Robbins' enormous... Influence. Let's take him to the to the side. You yeah. Know. Uh, yeah. I mean, if 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 that converse, for example, I would never talk about black people uh, pimping. pimping black yeah. yeah. 
that's not my place in society, right? My place in society is to uplift the people doing good work and the people struggling for justice and whoever other people within the community can take down the bad actors within that community. So before any man rushes in to say um, there's bad actors in the Me Too movement, the first step is to uplift the good actors in the Me Too movement. And, and of course, in any, in any opportunity, there may be one or two people who are using this for personal gain, but they are so far the minority. And this is such an incredibly painful problem that so many women have experienced for so long and remain silent on it. Um, that to say that they're coming forward out of some kind of personal gain yeah, is just completely yeah. inappropriate. Yeah, his, his words were, were, were totally uh, out of whack. It sounded like he, he wanted to suggest like the majority, like it's, yeah. it's, it's kind of uh, the majority of women are, are looking to uh, gain significance, as, as he says. And when you hear men saying that, it makes you question everything about them. Like, why would they be talking about that? Meaning like, hey, could this guy have something in his past where this guy may have done some things? Yeah. And that's why he's using that language. Mark Zuckerberg uh, today uh, testified before Congress. He wasn't sure he was going to testify before Congress uh, coming after the Cambridge Analytica uh, controversy, but he agreed to testify and he testified today. Is Sheryl Sandberg a role model for you? Not at all. When she was waving the lean-in flag, this is how you should you know, think about progressing and making it up uh, you know, the ladder. Did that resonate with you back then when that book came out? I'm not going to lie, it did. Um, but the longer, you know, I, a couple of things. Uh, just working with so many young adults who've worked in tech companies and have experienced such harmful, toxic environments, including at Facebook, um, has really given me pause. Like, why is she writing this book for women all over the world, but she's not focused on creating that kind of environment at Facebook where uh, people in marginalized groups can really thrive. I think like, wouldn't you, um, wouldn't you take care of your own domain first? Um, and the other thing is just really uh, seeing, you know, I post on the Lean In community all the time about interracial sisterhood and let's all get together and let's get to know each other and all this stuff. And I get like zero traction within that community. I see very little leadership on the interracial sisterhood. And when I go back and read like what Audre Lorde had to say about this and, or Bell Hooks has to say about this and then look back at Lean In, I realize it's, yeah. She's so whitewashed she's out. She's so she, whitewashed out. Yeah. yeah. She's not a role model, do you think, for not just women of color, but you think she's just not a good role model. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, she's clearly had a very incredible career. And I like that she has a mixture of public service and, and, 
and executive leadership and around issues of like balancing motherhood and work and stuff like that, certainly. But around the overall issues of women in the workplace, I think she represents a very narrow viewpoint and she has very little curiosity about expanding the viewpoint and becoming an advocate for all women in the workplace. She recently uh, pulled out of an interview with ABC because she had a relationship with uh, George Stephanopoulos and they, they gave the interview to someone else. Uh, many people think that they were just gonna be more critical. In a prior interview about a week ago, uh, she was being questioned on NBC and she says, hey, if the people don't like what we're doing about our, 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 our privacy and our data, you know, we would have to go in a paid direction. And so I know that Mark Zuckerberg and Cheryl uh, Sandberg, they're very scripted. They're very kind of PR heavy. When we you know when they talk, uh, you know, it seems like they lack uh, uh, empathy and humanity and, and kind of everything needs to be scripted. But this interviewer uh, actually got Cheryl to really speak her mind. Like the first thing she says when being questioned about users getting their privacy back is you got to pay for it, even if that's the business position. Your consciousness is kind of like, hey, you know, uh, that, that that's our or maybe just from a PR perspective, like it's not the right time to talk about that. But I feel like people got an insight to Cheryl's soul and that people are going to find out as face, this Facebook story plays out is that Facebook can't be fixed. You can't have a program. You can't invest millions and millions of dollars, billions of dollars in security uh, when the, the, the regulators, the EU, the advertisers, the consumer, when everyone forensically goes into this organization, they're gonna see that the problem with Facebook really boils down to Mark and Cheryl's personality. It's a cultural problem. So these people would not be the uh, appropriate people to fix uh, something of, of this skill. Uh, would you agree with that? Um, you know, uh... I was very involved here in San Francisco in the struggle to unseat our previous chief of police, and we were successful in, in uh, getting him fired. And then the question became, well, who's going to replace him? And the mayor uh, at the time really strongly supported having an internal candidate become the new chief of police, and we demanded, no, it has to be an external candidate. You can't reform a culture that's having this type of cultural problems uh, with an internal leadership candidate. You have to bring someone from the outside um, because they're not, the people who are already there can't see the problem and they are part of the problem. Yeah, uh, that came up on a uh, prior show uh, where a lot of Fortune 500 companies will bring in strategy consultants to get a fresh look at something. They want, you know, an unbiased analysis of a big problem within an organization. You outsource it. You need someone fully independent. I feel like when I hear, uh, you know, your Zuckerbergs, your Sandbergs, your Mark Andreessen's, your Silicon Valley white establishment, they're so smart. They're so successful. We can fix this. Uh, they just have an attitude where 
we know the proper way to define uh, diversity. It's all about cognitive diversity. Uh, teaching, it sounds like they're teaching uh, black executives who, who come into these diversity roles at Apple and Facebook, uh, that cognitive diversity, that's what it's all about. You can have a room of 10 white men in the same room and still have diversity. Black woman, uh, a diversity executive at Apple, uh, she was given her walking papers for most likely just saying what Tim Cook and a lot of the uh, leaders at Apple told her to, to say, but she didn't understand her role was probably uh, very concentrated with PR. Mm-hmm. Yeah, to, to outwardly project a different image and, and message. Uh, a friend of mine coined the term diversity theater, where you have all the trappings of diversity while continuing to operate in the exact same way you've always operated. So big question. In terms of inequality at the big tech level, uh, in terms of these institutions exacerbating wealth inequality, uh, programming uh, disruption in a way where I don't care what happens, I don't care who gets hurt, I just need to kill my competitors and create a lot of wealth, you can worry about that stuff later. How do you, what steps do you take to really address these, these big and complex issues? Well, I think our Buckminster Fuller was 100% right, where you can't reform something that's already been created. It's better to create something new and make the old obsolete. And so I think you see that with with uh, entrepreneurs like yourself, like Morgan Debon, uh, folks who are saying, you know what, I'm going to create my own thing. And... Um, trying to fix these old platforms is not, it's not really a worthy investment of my time. What about from a political perspective? Uh, let's start here in the state of California. I know the, the Silicon Valley uh, lobbyists, they have a big wallet. They have compromised politicians, including Barack Obama. I believe that uh, the wallets out of Silicon Valley really clawed into uh, Barack Obama. They ran his campaign. They were in his administration. A lot of Facebook folks, a lot of people left Barack Obama's administration to go work uh, at Facebook, to go to the Silicon Valley overlords, uh, such as uh, Eric Holder, who I believe two years ago was getting two big checks out of Silicon Valley, similar to how things work on Wall Street. You leave government, you go to Wall Street, uh, and it's just a kind of revolving door. Obviously, uh, this has implications in terms of the integrity of the democracy in the United States. Where do you begin from a, uh, from a policy perspective? Uh, let's start here in California. What, what, what needs to be done in terms of the politicians and combating how much power and influence a Google and Facebook has? And they're spending money and money on lobbying, trying to suppress people like uh, yourself uh, in terms of promoting change that's really in the uh, best interest of the masses, uh, not necessarily money. Yeah, well, good luck on, I mean, the, the, the power, <laughs> it, it is all about the power of the people. And we, the people, have to educate ourselves and build movements. You know, politicians are never, you know, what, uh, what, 
uh, Frederick Douglass said, power concedes nothing without a demand. Like politicians are not going to just say, oh, let me take on the cause of antitrust on tech companies. We, the people, have to demand that. And I think the tech workers themselves, it's been really interesting to see more tech workers become engaged politically um, and starting to change that. So, for example, we have a very active Democratic Socialists of America chapter here in San Francisco. A lot of millennial tech workers in there getting very, very engaged. Um, so I think that's how the change is going to happen. It's not going to be because an elected official wakes up one day and says, let's start to bring these companies down. Have you heard anything about our from Cory Booker and Kamala Harris? Uh, it looks like the elites and corporate Democrats are positioning them for uh, 2020. But have they spoken out uh, against the establishment in Silicon Valley? Yeah, I haven't heard anything um, you know, I myself have had personal interactions with Kamala Harris around police accountability that have been extremely frustrating. I just read something that, uh, uh, frankly, she's a, a, a fake on criminal justice reform. Yeah. Completely. Uh, you know, we tried to pressure her to come in and do a pattern and practice investigation of the San Francisco Police Department. And she said, I'm going to wait for the Department of Justice to issue its recommendations. And if they don't, if they don't implement them, then I'll decide whether or not I'm going to act, knowing full well that by the time the recommendations came out, she would already be in Washington. You know, I admire her. I admire Cory Booker greatly. And um, uh, I think they, they are fantastic individuals. And I would be, you know, I would love for Kamala Harris to become the president of the United States. Um, but how could you say that without knowing who she would be running against? So when you say that you would love Kamala Harris to be president of the United States, but given uh, at least in my in my view, her positions are not authentically progressive. Uh, yeah. That she's part of a wing of the Democratic Party uh, that uh, is not going to get the people there. Uh, that there could be something better. Uh, it doesn't matter if it's uh, at least in my perspective. I don't care if that leader's uh, white, Latino, Asian. Uh, I don't care about their gender as much as this country is in, in such a, a dire state uh, that uh, we have to be careful in terms of how we price in our tribal politics. Yeah, I'm, I'm just wondering, hey, how can you say you would be glad if Kamala Harris uh, is president? Is it because, because she's a woman or she's a female Democrat and that's why or... Well, because she's a woman, woman of color from the Bay Area, those types of things. Um, but, you know, saying that my police accountability activist friends would be very unhappy with me for saying that when I came out publicly saying these that. Are, these are black people in the Bay, in the trenches. They do not give Kamala Harris a lot of credibility with police reform Certainly. here in the trenches. Yeah here in the trenches, no. Um, 
the re- yeah, the reason why I because I don't see who the alternative is, right? I don't see another leader emerging that's going to be if Kamala Harris is running against Bernie Sanders. I would definitely go for Kamala Harris. I Yeah. No. I mean Bernie Sanders to me, I'm like I just don't like angry white guys running things, especially whose supporters are largely angry white guys. Uh Hopefully the Democrats I, can run someone better than Kamala Harris and Bernie Sanders. Listen, I feel like our society is in decline and it's very, it's really difficult for whoever becomes president to reverse the course of income inequality, racial inequality, police militarization, you know, the police guns they're all on on one side, the prison industrial complex. So it's really, it's, I, I don't understand why more people are not alarmed and, and active on the police accountability activism because we are really moving, we are becoming a police state. When you see tanks rolling down the streets of Baltimore and Ferguson, and if, if police really were so concerned about their safety, wouldn't they be the number one proponents of gun control and getting guns off the street? But instead, they are, they, they say, keep sending us more military equipment, give us stronger. And, and the Obama administration uh, gave that to them, you know, and, and it's, it's terrifying to me. So we moved into society where 20% of the people control 95% of the wealth, and that's not enough. Like, they, they want more. This does not end well. And you have, like, this very militarized police in the middle designed to, to keep that system in place. We need really strong leadership um, to, to change the course of that. All right, I'd like to thank uh, Karen Fleshman, uh, the founder of Racy Conversations. You can check her out on Twitter. You want to give us uh, your handle? Uh, yes, I'm at Fleshman Karen, um, www.racyconversations.com. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you very much, Jamarlin. You're one of my favorite people, and it's lovely to meet your wonderful producer, Anita. I'm so excited to be here. It's an honor to be on your show. Thanks, everybody, for listening to Go. You could check me out at Jamarla Martin on Twitter and also come check us out at moguldom.com. That's M-O-G-U-L-D-O-M.com. Be sure to subscribe to our daily newsletter. You can get the latest information on crypto, tech, economic empowerment, and politics. Let's go.